Before we read God's holy, inerrant, infallible word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer, asking him to bless this word that he has breathed out by his spirit that we might rightly understand. Let's pray together. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Hear now the word of the Lord. It is written. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does a prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azadus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I can imagine that Philip was just settling into his ministry in Samaria as Peter and John headed back to Jerusalem. You know, getting into a nice groove of sharing the gospel, of demonstrating the reality of God's kingdom through signs and wonders, discipling those who had newly come to faith in Christ. And man, oh man, what a ministry it was. Men and women were coming in droves out of the clutches of sin and death and were putting faith in Jesus Christ and were being baptized. Philip was literally watching people being moved from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life, from deception to truth. And not only this, he was watching walls being broken down between groups of people who had long had animosity between them. 
It was reconciliation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just reconciliation with God, but reconciliation with one another. Much had been and was being accomplished for the sake of God's kingdom. And there was plenty of work yet to be done. How sweet it must have been for Philip to simply be there, not to mention to be a tool that God had used in his hand to bring it about. And what an encouragement it must have been, especially after Stephen's brutal death. Now, can you imagine what must have been going through Philip's mind when he received word from the heavenly messenger instructing him to leave Samaria? Philip might have been thinking, surely not, God. I I must be misunderstanding. Maybe I didn't hear the angel's voice correctly. Why would you want me to leave a successful ministry here? And it wasn't just leaving a successful ministry in Samaria behind. It was leaving to travel to a location between Jerusalem and Gaza. Look at Luke's commentary here. This is a desert place. Had Philip done something wrong? Was God angry with him? Why would God uproot him and send him into a barren place? Was he being punished? Think about what the desert represented for the people of God. They had spent 40 years there wandering around when the Lord brought them out of Egypt. And let me ask you this. Have you ever looked at a map? Israel, the promised land, is right next to Egypt. They share a border. Just to give you some perspective, the distance between Cairo and Jerusalem is roughly 325 miles if you travel the well-worn path along the Mediterranean Sea. That's the distance from Monroe to Fort Worth, Texas. Their journey should have only taken a few weeks, perhaps less than two weeks, but God brought them into the desert and kept them there because of their hard-heartedness and disobedience. Jesus had also spent some time in the desert. We remember that this is where he was led by the Spirit to be tempted and tried by Satan. Certainly, the significance of the desert was not lost on Philip. There's also some confusion here concerning what the actual instruction was. The Greek can be translated, as we see it here in the ESV, rise and go toward the south to the road. But it can also be translated... Rise and go at noon, midday, to the road. And this would make the instruction from the angel all the more perplexing, since a desert was not a place to be wandering around at noon. There wouldn't likely be any travelers there out on this desert road in the afternoon hours. But isn't this what Luke's comment is underlining, isn't it underlining the unusual nature of this instruction to go to this place? We don't know what Philip was thinking, though, do we? Luke doesn't tell us. Luke simply says this in verse 27. And he rose and went. Period. Just like that. He left Samaria for the desert. Amazing. Could you do it? Leave successful ventures in the rear view. Leave a place where your gifts were being recognized and used to their fullest potential. A place where you were making a difference. Could you just up and leave? No questions asked. And 
For what? A place that's barren of life? Not exactly an appropriate place for a gifted Christian evangelist, right? But verse 27 continues, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. What are the chances that one would run into a royal official of a foreign kingdom in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the day? Not only this, but one who is returning from Jerusalem in reading from the prophet Isaiah. There are several things we need to stop and note here. At first, the treasurer wasn't from modern-day Ethiopia. This man is from what is elsewhere in Scripture referred to as the land of Cush, which is probably the ancient Nubian kingdom that lay just south of Egypt. In Isaiah 11, which is the chapter in Isaiah that prophesies that a shoot will come forth from the stump of Jesse, a prophecy of Jesus Christ, Cush is identified as a land from which the Lord will save a remnant of his people. Zephaniah also prophesies of a time that those from beyond the rivers of Cush will come upon, will call upon the name of the Lord and worship and serve him. So there was significance to where this man was from. It was a place from which God would call his people. It was a place that represented, as one commentator put it, the extreme limits of the civilized world. In other words, this man was from what would have been considered the end of the earth. Second, it's significant that this man was a eunuch. Now, it wasn't uncommon in the ancient world for slaves to be castrated as boys and then used as keepers of harem and the treasury. As one scholar notes, eunuchs were found to be particularly trustworthy and loyal to their rulers. But the fact that he was a eunuch was an important detail given where he was coming from. For eunuchs were not allowed to join the full congregation of Israel because of their physical condition, their blemish, according to Deuteronomy. So here's a man returning from Jerusalem. He had made the long journey to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, probably during a religious festival. But he would not even have been able to enter into the temple to worship with the rest of God's people. This demonstrated his desire for the Lord, though. He was clearly a God-fearing man. He was eager to worship and serve the Lord. And now he's traveling back home. And he had a scroll of scripture. Isaiah, a costly possession. And he's pouring over it, trying desperately to understand. Enter Philip into the scene, guided by the Holy Spirit. And Philip comes to the man's aid, being invited by the man to help him understand what he was reading, perhaps after the man recognized Philip as a Jew. And it just so happens that the man was reading Isaiah 53, a chapter which speaks of the servant of God who suffers humiliation of all kinds and bears the consequences of the sin of others. He thus makes some kind of atonement for their sins and is finally exalted by God. Dearly beloved, nothing in Acts 8 is coincidence, though, is it? And this passage provided Philip a golden 
opportunity to preach Christ and Him crucified. His humble submission to an unjust death, a sinner's death, suffered by a guiltless man for the sake of atonement, the forgiveness of our sins. Surely He has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 50. Jesus Christ stood in our place. He took on himself our sin and he submitted himself to our punishment. But this was all that we might, by God's grace, be counted as righteous and delivered from bondage to sin and death. So Philip was able to provide what was needed here, a Christian interpretation of This passage, which provided not only the atoning significance of Christ's death, but also the peace and healing that comes through Jesus' sufferings. And Philip was able to provide this because Jesus had himself helped his disciples to understand Scripture in this way. Luke tells us that before his ascension, Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Jesus had taught his disciples to recognize and understand how all of the law and the prophets pointed to him. They'd been given the key to unlock the Old Testament scriptures, and they had sought to explain scripture in light of Christ in Jerusalem and now beyond. And as unexpected as everything in this story is, it continues right through the end with the eunuch requesting to be baptized when they came upon water and where else but in the middle of the desert. Peter's sermon from the day of Pentecost is any example of how the early church preached Christ and called for response, repentance, and baptism. And then we can assume that Philip had done likewise with the eunuch, and the eunuch who had been seeking God did respond by rejoicing at the good news of the gospel and placing his faith in Christ. So he asked Philip, what prevents me from being baptized? The reality was that much had prevented him from worship and inclusion among God's people. But the promise of God's word from the prophet Isaiah chapter 56 is that eunuchs will one day be included in God's kingdom. And that day had come in Jesus Christ. Further, Isaiah 52:15, which is really a part of the same section of Isaiah that the eunuch was reading from, states that the Messiah will sprinkle many nations. So nothing was stopping his baptism. And right there and then in the middle of the desert, he was baptized into the household of God by Philip. Now it becomes very obvious why the Holy Spirit had called Philip to this place, right? 
this was a divine appointment. And even if Philip did not understand at the time why God had called him away from Samaria into the desert, Philip was obedient nonetheless, and his obedience was used by God to bring about this redemption in the desert. What a remarkable story this is, especially for us today. It might be that you, like me, have been discouraged by the state of our culture. So many things seem to be moving in the wrong direction, morally, politically, racially, spiritually. We've watched moral decay increase rapidly in the past 10 years or so as the church has steadily declined. Before COVID, our nation was already seeing the number of unchurched people increase. People who were not only not attending church, but who were identifying themselves as nuns. That's N-O-N-E-S, meaning that they claimed no faith. And now, almost a year and a half after COVID entered the U.S. with a vengeance and shut everything down, there's a huge question if many in this country will ever return to church after being away for so long. But this isn't all that's happened in the last year or so. Somehow, in the midst of COVID, in the midst of lockdowns, racial tensions have continued to increase. Civility has declined. Violence has exploded across the country. Does anybody else feel like we are living in a desert place? In a barren land? Where finding signs of life are becoming increasingly hard to come by? It isn't a place we wanted to be. We were thrust here. And we might be looking for a way out or moping around, depressed, wondering how we got here. So I hope this passage will be an encouragement to you. It answers the questions. Can God move here? Absolutely. Can God save here? Unquestionably. Can a Christian witness be effective here? Without a doubt, God is preparing hearts to come to him. And he can bring them to himself even here, especially here. As Stephen Nichols, quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said in our Sunday school lesson this morning, this world must not be prematurely written off. The question is, are there workers ready for the harvest? This passage challenges us to consider several things today about evangelism in our context. And we need to be attentive to the lessons that can be learned here. I want to highlight three this morning. First, this passage emphasizes the importance of being attentive to, listening to, and obeying the Holy Spirit. It is unmistakable that this meeting between Philip and the eunuch has been divinely arranged. It's clear throughout this passage that all the initiative belongs to God. Philip is sent into the desert by the command of an angel. He is prompted by the Spirit to approach the eunuch. And at the end of the passage, he is carried away by the Spirit elsewhere to continue his work. But we see that Philip is fully obedient to the Spirit. When God says, go, Philip went. Even running to the eunuch, which was not something men in that culture did, it was quite undignified. But Philip is more concerned with immediate obedience than he is with his own dignity or pride. God, being sovereign over all things, does indeed set up divine appointments 
for us. It is by his grace that he intends to use us as ministers of the new covenant, as ambassadors for Christ, as the Apostle Paul describes in 2 Corinthians. Paul says that God has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. It's a humbling task to be used as an instrument in the hand of God for his redemptive purposes. And I hope that we would recognize in this passage the reality of these appointments and that it would cause us to keep our ears open to the voice of God that instructs us to go and do would keep our eyes open to the opportunities to share Christ, would cause us to pray for these opportunities, would pray that God would direct our steps, that we might cross paths with others in a way that we might be used by him for his glory. It might be waiting in line at a grocery store. It might be sitting on an airplane. It might be with a neighbor or a coworker. But wherever it is God calls us to go, and whatever it is that God calls us to do, it requires us to be attentive to the moving of the spirit we must be sensitive to that tugging on our heart when god is urging us to speak to that person in the parking lot or waiting room or to call that friend who we haven't spoken with in far too long and that might be a scary thing for us to do but consider the delights consider the delights that philip would have missed If he had not responded to the angel by saying, no, thanks. I'm good right where I am. We too miss the joys of participating in God's redemptive work when we refuse to respond to those divine nudges or when we're so caught up in ourselves and what we are doing that we miss them altogether. So let this passage serve as an encouragement to pay attention and to obey. Second, this passage reminds us of the saving power of God's word and the importance of our study of it. Here's an honest question we need to ask ourselves. If you encountered a person on the street, or let's say you walk into the Starbucks up here on the corner to grab a cup of coffee. You spot someone reading their Bible, your eyes meet, and this person says, hey, you wouldn't happen to be a Christian, would you? Yes, I am, you reply. And this person responds, great. I've been reading the Bible trying to figure out what this text means. Can you help me? And here is the question. Can you? And I'm not necessarily saying that you should be able to answer Someone's every question about the book of, say, Revelation, although Revelation 1-3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Sort of hard to keep what is written if we have no understanding of it, just saying. But back to my point. Do you have an adequate understanding of Scripture to be able to demonstrate to someone that God created all things and that all things belong to Him? Could you explain using Scripture that all people have fallen short of God's glory, have transgressed His law, and are subject to His just punishment, and thus are in desperate need of His forgiveness and grace, being unable to please God on their own? Would you be able to point to the scriptures that prophesy to the coming of the Savior to take away the sins of the world, revealing how God had a plan to address the problem of sin? 
Are you able to show how Jesus fulfills these prophecies? Living a sinless life, offering himself up as a sacrifice for our sin and rising victorious from the grave. Could you support your claim that Jesus reigns in power and is coming again to judge the living and the dead? And are you confident that you would be able to give evidence in Scripture of what a proper response in faith is to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Could you do this for the one who is searching like the Ethiopian eunuch? We should be careful that our practice matches what we say we believe about Scripture, that it is God's holy word. We say that we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, that it is the only rule of faith and obedience. But do we seek to not just read the Bible, but to know it in a way that it shapes us, that it helps us to know how to live our everyday lives and how to make difficult decisions? We claim to believe what Paul says to Timothy, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And right before Paul writes these words, he encourages Timothy to know how from childhood he has been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It isn't just that we should read Scripture. Notice in Acts 8 that reading and understanding Scripture are not one in the same. It is understanding Scripture that makes you wise for salvation. So do you understand Scripture? And there isn't any shame in saying that you need help to understand it. The Apostle Peter, speaking of the letters of the Apostle Paul, says there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Peter acknowledges that there are portions of God's word that are difficult. And here's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. The meanings of all the passages in the Bible are not equally obvious. Nor is any individual passage equally clear to everyone. It's okay to find some parts of scripture more difficult to understand than others. But the question is, what are you doing about it? Do you have an eagerness to know God's word and to understand it like the Ethiopian eunuch? Are you willing to ask for help? And God is gracious in that he not only gives us the gift of his word, but he also gives us the gift of people who understand it and are able to teach it. It's one of my greatest desires that Covenant would have a culture where people are enthusiastic to study and understand God's word. We should be doing this privately, but we also must be studying God's word in community with one another, whether it's one-on-one discipleship or through group Bible studies or Sunday school or small groups. Studying God's word was a priority in the early church, as we've already seen. Is it a priority in our community? But we also mustn't miss here that God's word is not something that is meant to be kept secret. God has opened our eyes to the truth of his word. And if we are truly saved, then we have been transformed by its truth. And we seek to understand scripture, not only for our salvation and for our sanctification, but also in order that we might share it with others. Believing that God's word has the power to save means that we as God's people should be ready and willing to enthusiastically share it that others may hear and believe and be saved. 
knowledge of God's word is not a treasure which we are meant to hide. As one Christian author put it, Scripture is the light and the heat of evangelism. The power lies in Scripture, not in us, but we must be willing to share. How will people hear and believe if we don't tell them? I pray that this passage challenges us to read and understand God's word in order that we might be equipped to share it with others. Finally, the third thing that this passage shows us is that God cares about the individual. Philip moves from evangelizing an entire community to evangelizing just one individual. This is enormously important for us to see. So often we're focused on worldly metrics. We see success, productivity, accomplishment in terms of sheer numbers, quantity. How many did you sell? How many did you make? How many did you speak with? How many did you say? And when it comes to sharing the gospel, we might think of ourselves as utter failures unless we are sharing our faith to the extent of someone like Billy Graham. This is a lie that Satan whispers to you that will keep you from ever doing anything at all. Believing from the outset that you will never be a success. He tells you that you will never succeed in order that there is a failure to launch. This passage speaks to us a very important truth then. Sometimes our mission is to share the message of the gospel with just one. And in this case, the Ethiopian eunuch, we might think that this one was important because of his position of prominence. And we might think, well, if we could share our faith with somebody of importance, then we might be a success too, because the person would then exercise influence over others. Here's the truth, though. The Ethiopian eunuch is never mentioned again in Scripture. He's not unknown to God, but never mentioned again. And perhaps he went back and shared his faith with those back home, and this might have happened. But church history records the evangelization of his nation hundreds of years later. It would seem that he made no noticeable difference back at home. This wasn't the concern. God's concern was for the individual, this individual man. He isn't just concerned with whole nations. He knows us and he loves us as individuals. And this is quite remarkable. It is quite remarkable because who am I that God would care for me? Who am I that God would love me? I am unworthy of his concern, of his love, of his care, and yet he sought me. He pursued me with his love, the one that he left the 99 for. Because this is the nature of our God. God is love. And we must see our evangelism from this perspective, from God's perspective. The love of Christ must control us as the Apostle Paul did. As all the apostles, as all the early disciples did. So it isn't about our ideas of success or our expectations of failure. It's about obedience to God, trusting that he will work out his purposes according to his perfect will. As Paul says to the Corinthians, we make it our aim to please 
Him. That's what we're after. Living for Him because He died for us. And we must understand that sometimes following the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives can be a strange thing. can make little sense to us at the time. Like leaving a successful work among many to journey into the desert to find one. But sometimes this is exactly what the Lord calls us to. And to Him be all the glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you would choose to store these treasures, the treasures of the gospel, the promises we have in Jesus Christ, that you would store these treasures in jars of clay. And Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged this day to go and to pour ourselves out, to let your love your mercy that we have experienced, your grace in Jesus Christ overflowing in our lives, touching those around us. Lord, help us to be ambassadors for Christ, ministers of the new covenant. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.